Well, good morning. It is good to be with you again. Would you turn in your Bibles to John 3.16? I want to talk to you this morning about your Heavenly Father. But before we begin in the passage, there's a lot of misconceptions about God the Father that are out there. In fact, if you've been to university, you might have heard that the God of the Old Testament, he's a distant God, he's a wrathful God. He was just ready to wipe you out and it took the God of the New Testament to come and, and, and make him happy with you. The Father somehow needed the Son to turn aside his anger, as it were, as if Jesus was this God of love, this New Testament God of love who was turning aside this Old Testament God of anger, God the Father. Have, have you heard that before? In fact, recently, this, there, was a, there was an attack on the doctrine of, of the substitutionary work of Jesus some authors over in England said that if God the Father crucified his own son, it's nothing more than cosmic child abuse. And these unhealthy views of God the Father, they really are related to our own unhealthy earthly views of a father. See, perhaps, I mean, a group this large... I'm sure there's those in this room who had a father that was cold and detached. That even when he was there, he wasn't there. Perhaps he was the type of father who sat in his chair and drank his beer and said, you make a better door than a window when you got in the way of his television. Perhaps you had a father who was angry and abusive. You might even still bear the marks. Perhaps you had a father who was absent. He was gone. He abandoned you. He abandoned your family. And you don't even know what a healthy view of a father ought to be. And so when you hear that God the Father loved the world and gave his son, you're skeptical. I want to tell you this morning that God the Father is not a father like earthly fathers. Even the best earthly fathers are always flawed. No human father is sinless. But God the Father, He's the Father you've always dreamed of. He's the Father you always desired. He's the Father you've wanted in your deepest dreams to have. Someone who would love you. Someone who would care for you. Someone who would make sure that your needs were met. Someone who's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so this morning... I want you to see in John 3, 16 that God the Father is more willing to give than you could ever imagine. Because I don't know if you're like me, but oftentimes I, I, I think, you know, the Father's probably just stingy, right? He just, you know, he gives and then we have to ask and then he'll give some more and then maybe we pray and ask some more and he'll give some more, but he's always holding back. Perhaps that's more a reflection of our fatherhood than God's. See, God the Father is not a father like this. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? If we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
this morning I just want you to consider three facets of the beauty of God the Father, the generous King, that you would draw near to Him as a Father, that you would enjoy His presence, and in doing so you would worship Him. This is what the Father desires. In fact, in Ephesians 2.18, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, he says that the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, we now have access to the Father. We can go into his very throne room. We can approach him in his presence. And Hebrews tells us we can do it with boldness, parousia, this great confidence that he's going to give us grace and mercy to help in our time of need. And is that what you need this morning? Do you need grace and mercy to help? I want you to see in this passage this morning that you can come to your Father in heaven, not with fear and trembling, not with sort of this anxiety that maybe he'll cast you out, maybe he'll kick you to the curb. No, I want you to come to him knowing that he's going to give you every good and perfect gift because he's the Father of lights in whom there's no variation, no shifting shadow. As we heard, he's immutable, unchangeable, the only wise God. So let's read this, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So these three facets that I want you to consider, really these Three parts of this passage this morning I want you to consider. First, I want you to consider the giver in this passage, the Father. I want you to consider the gift in this passage, the Son. He so loved the world, He gave His Son. And I want you to consider the offer that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So let's consider the giver God so loved the world. This demonstrates the intensity of the Father's love. This is more than friendliness. This is more than openness. This is more even than pity. This is the Father freely out of his character. The greatness of his love comes shining through the lengths the Father is willing to go to save the world. He so loved the world, he gave his Son. The Father, the one, as I said in James 1, is the giver of every good and perfect gift. The one in Acts that the disciples prayed to who said, Almighty, Sovereign Lord, Maker of heaven and earth, in Acts 4, 24. Who is this giver? He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. The Gospels tell us he's our Father in heaven. Remember, Jesus said, this is how we ought to pray to him. Our Father who's in heaven... Hallowed be your name. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the living God. He's the most high God. He's the living Father, the Holy Father, Scripture says. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul tells us. 
He's not only creator, he's the one who is the redeemer, who loved the world and sent his son. He's the eternal God, the only wise God, the father of mercies and the God of all comforts, 2 Corinthians tells us. He's the living and true God, the God of peace. He's the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the majesty on high, the majesty in heaven, the Lord God almighty who reigns in the book of Revelation. This is our father in heaven. And so do you think that if you have requests to ask him, he's able to grant them? There's no one who can thwart him. Because even human fathers, we desire to give good gifts, but sometimes we're not able. We lose our jobs. We lose our health. We don't know the future. We make promises we can't keep, even though they were meant to be kept. But our Father in heaven, who knows the end from the beginning, who's planned and purposed all things according to the counsel of his will, he's doing everything to sum up the whole universe for the sake of his Son, The Father has included all of our prayers and all of our thoughts, and he's causing all things to work together for good. That blows my mind. This almighty, sovereign Lord who is our Father in heaven, in this passage in John 3, 16, he freely gives out of his love. Would you look a little farther down in the chapter, verse 35? The Father loves the Son, it says. The Father loves the Son, and He's given all things into His hand. Now now turn over to John chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows... The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Now turn over to one more passage, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Same author, the the, the Apostle John, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. Now think about this. What John is getting at, we heard God so loved the world that he gave his son. And then we hear the father loves the son. And the father loves the son so much he shows him everything that he's doing. And everything that he's doing is to sum up the universe for the sake of his son. And part of that is to redeem a people. That's what we see in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is the manifestation of the character of God. God the father who is love demonstrates it by sending his son into the world so that we might live through Christ. This is good news. The sending of God's Son is both the revelation of God's love. This is how God loved us. It's how he shows his love. It's the very essence of love because God is love. And guess what? It's not our love that's primary, is it? 
It's God's free, uncaused, and spontaneous love that is primary. And all of our love is just a response to the God who is love. Isn't that what we hear? We love because he first loved us. We now know what love is. And I want you to turn back to John 17, verse 23. This is the verse that just staggers me. John 17, verse 23. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now, at face value, I'll be honest with you, when I read this verse, to me it sounds almost like blasphemy. Why is that? Because if I was writing this verse, I wouldn't say that the Father loves me as much as he loves Jesus. I would say the Father loves the Son far greater than he ever loved me. I would say he might have a love for me, but it pales in comparison to the love he has for his Son. But what does this verse say? I in them and you in me, so that the world would know that you love them even as you loved me. How could that be? How is it possible? This is why we sing the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win and his erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. It's not because there was something intrinsically lovable in us. The object of his love is his son. And the reason he loves us as much as he loves his son is because we're in Christ. The father loves his son. He gives a people to his son. He sends the son to the world and Jesus dies on the cross for us and he purchases us and he buys us with his blood and then we're united to him by his spirit so that when the father looks at us, what does he see? His son. And the father loves us as much as he loves his son. Now, now Christian, I want you to get this down deep in your heart. I don't want you to just know this intellectually in your head that God loves you. I want you to feel it instinctually. Because when the trials of life crush you and they weigh down upon you, you need to run to your Father in heaven and know that He loves you and know that He's for you and not against you and know that He'll never leave you and He'll never forsake you. Back to John 3.16. God so loved This world, he demonstrates his love. He freely gives out of love, and he gives to a fallen world. God so loved the world. This world, this fallen and rebellious world, cannot love God. It's broken. It's filled with addictions. The drug epidemic breaks my heart. I read a news article a couple months ago that the homeless tent population in Los Angeles has gone to 100,000 people. It breaks my heart. I was in Portland 
earlier in the year, and I come off the, out of the airport off the highway, and there's just tent populations. And it breaks my heart. The violence, the school shootings that seem to be on the rise, the abuse that is just prevalent in our culture. I think of even this year, this Me Too movement where women have the courage to come out and speak about the abuse they've received. And I think of those who don't have the courage, that are living in it. The grief and the sorrow and the hopelessness reminds me of Ezekiel 18 where God says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. No, rather, I am pleased when they turn from their ways and live. This is the heart of our Father. This God who created the heavens and the earth, He hasn't given up on this fallen world. He loves this fallen world. He sent His Son to die for this fallen world. He's invested in it. He's going to make this world new, and we're going to live and reign on this earth. He's going to make it new. In fact, Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning and longing for that day, and we should long for it too. May we not get so wrapped up in this world and the things of the world that we get numb to this. There is a world that has fallen and lost, and according to John chapter 3, it's because it hates the light, it doesn't want to come to the light because their works were evil in verse 19. And this world is perishing, verse 18. It's condemned already because it's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But this world is not hopeless because God so loved the world that He gave His Son. In fact, God, verse 17, didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. What was there in this world that God should love it? It's not because it's so big. It's not because it includes so many people. This world is so wicked that we're told not to love anything of it. Isn't that what John tells us in 1 John 2? Don't love the world or anything in it. So how does the Father love this world? He doesn't love it in, a, in this sort of way that we tend to do, this selfish love of participation. He loves it with a selfless, costly love of redemption. He gives his son. He gives his best. He who is loved sent his precious son to die in our place as a payment for our sin. And if you are outraged by that, you ought to be. It's good. It should shock you that the God of the universe gives his innocent, perfect, holy son to die for sinners who deserve judgment. It ought to stagger you. And you'll get a picture of the enormity of the price that the father paid to purchase us. To buy us with the blood of Christ. But I want you to think about this as well. Even though we're a part of this wicked world, and prior to Christ, before we were saved, we were headlong in it. There's nothing good in us that forced the Father, that twisted His arm and caused, us to, caused Him to save us. I want you to realize, according to this verse, we're not worthless. The Father fixes the value of our worth at the cross. Think about this. Uh, Keith and Kristen Getty just wrote a, a, a recent hymn. And the first verse says, My worth is not in what I own, nor in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. And then at the end of the, the song, in the fourth verse, they sing this. Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. 
my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. See, this world tells us you're worthless. That unless you're successful and unless you're rich and unless you're popular, unless you have good looks, unless you have it all together, you're worthless. But God the Father says, no, I fixed the value of your worth at the cross. I gave my son for you. I gave you my best. I gave you that which was most precious to me at the cross. And if he did not spare his own son, how will he not freely with him give us all things? This is the giver. Consider the giver. Consider the father. (laughs) Second, consider the gift. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. How deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. We sing that, don't we? Oh, that we would have fresh eyes to sing it anew, to understand that what a gift it is, the gift of his son. In fact, look back in the passage, John 3, verse 13. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. You remember this in the context. He's having this conversation with Nicodemus, who's a teacher of Israel. And and he tells Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born from above, or you'll never even see the kingdom of God. And in verse 13... Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now when God gives his Son, he gives his Son for a purpose. Jesus says it here in verse 14. I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. I'm going to be just like that serpent in the wilderness that you're going to have to look upon and believe and live. I'm going to be nailed to a cross. I'm going to become a curse. I'm going to become a curse so that you could be forgiven. I'm going to die in your place so that you could have life. I'm going to be cast off from fellowship with the Father. The Father's going to turn his back so that you could have reconciliation and be a friend of God. This is what's going to happen at the cross. And Jesus knew it, and he looked forward to it. In fact, turn over to Galatians 4. I know I have you jumping around everywhere, but Galatians 4, verse 4. This is Paul's argument in Galatians. Jesus came at exactly the right time. He didn't come before his time, and he didn't come after his time. He came at the high point of the ages, Hebrews tells us. And here Paul says in verse 4, Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, now ladies, don't be bothered that this says sons. Because what he's talking about here is something very specific. The one who receives the inheritance. The son here is the firstborn who receives the inheritance. And who is that? Jesus, the son of God. 
And because we're united to him, now we receive the inheritance. We are now sons of God. And if that still bothers you, ladies, remember that us men are called the bride of Christ. God the Father gives this gift of a son in order that it would stir up family affections for God as Father. So that instinctually, out of our hearts, we cry out what? Abba, Father. In fact, this means we shouldn't live in the fear of a slave, but in the affection of a son and a daughter. And if you're not living your Christian life, or rather, if you are living your Christian life with a slavish fear... You're worried that God's going to just put you under his thumb and crush you in an instant? You're not understanding the gospel rightly. You're not understanding that you should have confident, peaceful, happy affection for God as your father. And so I pray that this, this message would just break those false beliefs about who God is. That it would instill in you this, this reality that God the Father is in heaven and he loves you. And he cares about you. He gave his son for you. This is the gift he gave his best. He reveals himself through his son, doesn't he? John 1 tells us. Jesus came to reveal the father. So if we want to know what the father's like, we look at the son. This happened in the incarnation. This happens in his life and ministry. The father pours out his spirit upon the son. And the son speaks the father's words. And he does the father's works. We see this throughout the gospels. And at the cross... The Father gives His Son to be the Savior of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And this is why the Spirit of God sheds forth the love of God abroad in our hearts, Romans 5, 5, reminding us of this reality. And the Father doesn't end there, does He? Jesus didn't stay in the grave. The Father raised Him up and seated Him at His right hand. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so there's this wonderful plan of God that's come about. And we're asked to come look at it, to behold it. And it's mystery to be sure, isn't it? We don't understand everything about it and we have all eternity to learn. But we have this great reality that the Father gave his Son. And goes on to say it's his, his only begotten son. It's, it's the one in, in verse 19 who's the light who's come into the world. None of us ever had a son to give like this. All of our sons are sons of men. His was the son of God. See, the father gives of himself. Charles Spurgeon said, When the great God gave his son, he gave God himself for Jesus is not in his eternal nature less than God. And when God gave God for us, he gave himself. What more could he give? God gave us all. He gave himself. Who can measure this love? And he did it for a purpose in John three sixteen. Turn back there. You know the purpose, don't you? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For what purpose? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In order to give us eternal life, John speaks of it. Jesus speaks of it, actually. John writes it down in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And John writes in his epistle, 1 John 3, this is the kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
And the reason the world does not know us is it didn't know God. Beloved, we're God's children. Now what, what it will be like, it's not yet appeared, has it? He says in 1 John 3. But we know that when he appears, we're going to be like him. Why? Because we'll see him as he is, and everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the testimony, he goes on in chapter 5, to say that God gave us eternal life. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. This is, this is our gift from the Father of his Son. And along with this gift of his Son is this wonderful gift of eternal life. And when Jesus speaks of eternal life, he's not talking about zombies and walking, you know, living forever, undead. He's talking about a quality of life that is never ending in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, the psalm tells us. This is what we have in Christ. Let me just read off a few things the New Testament says. We can't turn to every passage, but... We get to be part of a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. We're a member of Christ's body now. He's our head. We're a, a son, a daughter of God. We're a person dressed for eternity with God, according to Galatians 3.27. We are accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1.6. We have been brought near to God, Ephesians 2.13. We have been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. We are guaranteed freedom from condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are a saint. We are one with all other believers. We have been given credit for having died with Christ in Romans 6, 3. Having been buried with him. Having been raised to new life. This is who we are in Christ. We are now friends of God. We are now children of God. We are now brothers and sisters to Jesus our King. We're in a new kingdom. We have a new eternity. We have a new hope. A hope that will never disappoint. It will never put us to shame. Why? Because God made the promise. And all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. Consider the gift. Turn over to Ephesians 1. I, I just have to do this. I got a little bit of time. I want you to look with a little bit of specificity, a little bit of exactness about the persons of the Trinity it's speaking about here. Why do I want to do this? Because we're considering the giver and we're considering the gift. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father who has blessed us in His Son, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, the Father, chose us in his Son before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is the Father. In love, the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his, the Father's will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the Beloved. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of the Father's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, the Father's will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. Do you hear what's going on here? The Father made this plan. This plan is in His Son. He unites us to His Son. It says over and over, in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved. Over and over, because we're in Christ, we have all of these wonderful blessings from eternity past to eternity future. I don't know about you. I grew up in Vallejo. I know some of you know that. The fact he could save a boy from Vallejo and give him all these promises and and rescue him from a life that was headed to perishing, headed to the grave, it causes me to want to dance and sing and rejoice and shout because I have a Savior in heaven who is the gift from my Father who loves me. Turn back to John 3.16. The last thing I want you to consider is consider the offer. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It is an offer for anyone. You see what he says here. He says, whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him. You know, there's a famous story told about George Whitfield, the evangelist, in the Great Awakening. It was actually a Saturday, February 17th, 1739. George Whitfield makes a decision to do open-air preaching. He goes to a bunch of coal miners in a town called Kingswood. It was outside of Bristol, It's as blue-collar as it gets. These men with their families lived in squalor and degradation. They squandered their lives in drink and violence and sex, and there were no churches nearby. They were ignorant. They didn't know anything about the Bible, anything about Christianity. And Whitfield's description of his ministry is a classic one. You may have heard it before. Now picture the scene. He's out on this, next to this coal mine, there's a green countryside just brilliant green because of all the rain in England, and yet there's these piles of black coal, these squalid huts made of mud and sticks, and there's a semicircle, just people deep of unwashed faces covered in coal. And this is what Whitfield writes. Having no righteousness of their own to renounce, they were glad to hear of a Jesus who was a friend of publicans. And he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the first discovery of their being affected was to see the white gutters made by their tears, which plentifully fell down their black cheeks as they came out of the coal pits. Hundreds and hundreds of them were soon brought under deep convictions, which, as the event proved, happily ended in sound and thorough conversion. And the change was visible to all, though numbers chose to impute it to anything rather than the finger of God. He was making justification for why he went and preached Jesus to these coal miners. And it's because Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. And I can't help but hear my own story in these words. I was the son of a refinery worker. I was a bully. I was filled with anger. And a dear woman from this church, Luella Ross, at a summer camp, shared the gospel with me when I was nine years old and I came to Christ. This gospel is for anyone. But here in this passage, that's right, whoever, and in this passage, it's for those that are perishing. 
those that are on their way to hell who are condemned already because they haven't believed in the Son of God. To perish according to John is to lose your life, verse, chapter 10, verse 28. To be doomed to destruction, chapter 17, verse 12. And if you reject this message this morning, according to this passage, you're doubly guilty because you haven't believed upon the name of Jesus. I don't want to see any of you perish. I want to see you come to Christ. And maybe you've grown up in this church and you've lived your whole life in church. I was a church kid. I know how it is. You can count the lights and you can count the ceiling tiles and you can do all sorts of things to waste your time in church on a Sunday morning so you don't have to hear the message. Would you consider this offer this morning that you have a Father in Heaven who loves you so much He gave His Son so that you wouldn't perish but have eternal life? And the wonderful news about this gift is that it's by faith. Verse 18 says, whoever believes is not condemned. Verse 16 says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There was a, a missionary named John Payton to New Hebrides Islands. And he was doing translation work and he couldn't come up with a word for believe in their language. And he was just struggling with it and he fell down exhausted in a lawn chair one day outside of his tent and the natives observed him and they said to him you know what it's good to stretch yourself out and rest when you're tired immediately he seized upon those words stretch out and rest and he translated the new testament word for believe into that stretch out and rest you want to know what believe means it means to put your weight on jesus to stretch out and rest as it were to rest your faith in him and trust him that he's your savior and he's your lord and he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you it's not our works it's not what we do it's simply trusting in jesus stretching out and resting on jesus placing your life and trust in christ according to chapter one to believe means to receive here in chapter three it means to come to the light to repent of our sins doesn't mean the one in the light is better than the one in the dark the end of verse 21 says that the work of even coming to the light is done by the Father through the Spirit. In fact, he says in earlier in the chapter that you must be born of the Spirit in order to see the kingdom of God. It's the Spirit who gives life according to John chapter 6. According to John chapter 7, Jesus, remember the last day of the feast, he stands up and he says, if anyone is thirsty, whoever believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John comments and says, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Amen. And Jesus prays and says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send another helper who's not only going to be with you, he's going to be in you. This is what the Spirit's ministry is to do. To open our eyes to see the beauty of this gift. To see the beauty of the giver. And if you see the beauty of the gift this morning, would you by faith trust in Jesus if you see him for who he is he's no longer a curse word he's no longer a myth he's no longer just a Jewish prophet who lived 2,000 years ago he's Lord and Savior the Son of God who died for your sins if you see that would you put your faith in him would you believe turn from your sins so that you would have eternal life consider the offer Let's turn over to John 17, and I'll close with this. 
maybe one more consideration. Consider the implications. John 17, verse 20. Jesus is praying for us at the end of his high priestly prayer. He's praying for us in this room. Anybody who would come to faith in Christ through the ages. And he says in verse 20, I don't ask for these only, but for all those who would believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. And the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you've sent me. And I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Think about the implications. Consider the implications for us. Those of us who are Christians in this room, these are the implications. We need to have unity with one another. Because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are in us and we're in them. We need to be a witness to the world. He says over and over in this passage in verse 21 and verse 23 that the world may believe that you've sent me, verse 21. Verse 23, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. We see that the implication of this is we're going to be forever in the presence of Father, Son, and Spirit, verse 24. See the glory of Christ. We're going to see him. We're going to see the Father. Revelation says he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. This is what we have in eternity. And the implication that because the Father has loved us and given us his Son, and because we believed in this offer of salvation, we now can love as God intended. The love of God is now in us, verse 26 says. And now we can love God and love others. We can love this fallen world and we can take this message that we heard this morning to our friends and our co-workers and our family who don't know Christ and even our enemies. And we can see God do a work in them. And so, Father, may you be about your business of glorifying your Son in our midst. What a thought that that He would use us as His instruments. Oh, consider the giver. Our Father in heaven who loves us. Consider the gift, his precious, only begotten son who died for us. And consider this offer that by, by faith we could not perish but have eternal life in Christ. Father, we thank you for this good news that we have in Christ. What a joy. What a privilege. Father, we'll never be the same. Would you use us now as... Jesus prayed that we would be witnesses of your love, witnesses of your gospel, witnesses of this gift that people, when they meet us, they would see Christ in us and they would desire that same thing, not because we're great, but because Christ is so great. Oh, do a work in this church for the sake of your gospel. Would you send revival in this community, Father? Would you use my brothers and sisters to share of this good news Would you excite them about who they are in Christ and what you've given them? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.